Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Jesus Christ, who fucking gives a shit, okay? Is it selfish? Is it altruistic, okay? We'll fucking figure that out in the old folks' home later. Right now, we have a chance to attach ourselves to a fucking moral cause, okay? We have to do this. We have to. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, despite the efforts of all you Democratic National Committee liberal elites, Bernie Sanders won the Iowa caucuses and is now the favorite to win the whole goddamn thing. Are you ready for the first Jewish president? Wait, Bernie Sanders is a Jew? <laughs> it's surprising, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even joking. <laughs> Oh, God damn it. No wonder he's so good at fundraising. He's like, everybody, these are friend prices, a dollar each. I don't care. <laughs> You're not going to be able to get away with that uh, in a few months. So enjoy it now. We're going to crack down. We're definitely going to be cracking down on this shit. Well, as long as we don't elect the, the gay fella. <laughs> it might come down to a Jew or a gay man. And, and uh, in all cases, I think that it's shameful that we haven't elected a woman first. Latin America has been electing women for years. The most stereotypically misogynistic people on the face of this planet are okay with women presidents. And somehow, somehow we're, we're not as a nation. It's very disturbing as, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a father of daughters. When they put up a good candidate, we'll I'll, we'll be happy to elect <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren. Uh, my name is Dave Sar from uh, Cornell University, and Yoel Imbar from University of Toronto. You are with us. Hey guys, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Are you excited for Jewish president? Uh yeah. I uh, filled in my California ballot. I just have to fax it in. Um, I was flirting with Andrew Yang for a while, but but I think it's I think it's going to be Bernie. It's got to be Bernie. So was Tamler until he until he found out he was brown. <laughs> Did you take that Washington Post quiz where it asks you about the issues and then that matches you with a candidate who best uh, yeah. matches your position? Yeah, and I got Yang, so I was thinking. About I, it. I got Yang too, but um... oh whoa! So you guys aren't driven by reason here. You're not driven by the actual no, because though that's a bullshit measure. Um, but also <laughs> you can't quantify your position. So I'm a full on Bernie bro. Now I don't know how it happened exactly, but in the last few weeks I became like a Chapo trap house listening, spend my days trolling Warren and Buttigieg supporters on Twitter. Bernie bro. I love it. That's amazing. I'm on board for the revolution. That's amazing. You're, you're, you're as communist as, as 
I mean, it's it's very weird given your your elite rich background that you would swing to <laughs> communism. Not a, but elite I, rich background. <laughs> you have an elite rich background. So, what are we going to talk about with Yoel? Yeah. So, should we talk about the Iowa caucuses where Pete Good Buttigieg tried to cheat his way? to a victory yeah but at least let's tell everybody that we're going to talk about in the second segment uh a deep deep issue in the philosophy of science but is psychology a science that's what we're going to tackle in the second segment right yeah definitively <laughs> definitively uh I, I i hope to get some definite answers by the end of the second segment in the first uh it's it's a paper by tally arconi that we have um talked about or we have i have alluded to because i had read it on, in a previous episode dave that we did on the trash talking studies and you guys did a whole episode on it yoel which i really enjoyed oh thank you that's very nice of you we'll put a link to to Two psychologists, four beers episode on this. And in honor of you. Oh, you're drinking. I'm not <laughs> drinking for once. Wow. This feels weird, actually. I'm having a beer in honor of you guys. So, um, yeah, normally I'm usually having something stronger at this point. So kind of put up with Dave, but uh, <laughs> at least it's a double IPA. Nice. Uh, yeah. To really be consistent with our theme, you have to go on about it for a while. Yeah. But you also can't be informed. You just like ramble uninformedly for like 10 minutes about the beer. Let's talk about the Iowa caucuses. So I, I feel like I'm informed. I want to know what from people who aren't as politically active as I am, what like what is your impression of what happened? Yeah, David, you first. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the, the reason I'm even willing to talk about this is because this to, to me largely isn't a political topic. This is a technological failure on, a, on an embarrassing scale that that maybe says something about the. Uh, how how bad Democrats are at getting shit done, and it's t- no nobody in their right mind would deploy a piece of software on a large scale that had been so uh, non tested. And these are the people you want to run your healthcare, as Trump said. As Trump yeah. said, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the the exactly the app that they used that was developed by a company called Shadow that is yeah. operated by a company called Acronym. It, it it couldn't be if you're a conspiracy theorist like you don't even have to try with this thing. And not only that, but Acronym had like B- Buttigieg gave like them $135,000. I mean, the whole thing is Oh shit, I didn't know that. It's terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, Yeah. So what are your thoughts, Yoel? Uh, So what I know is that they fucked up the reporting such that on Tuesday night, nobody knew anything. And then Buttigieg sort of declared victory without everything being in. And now sort of Bernie sort of catching up and it seems like neck and neck. And that's basically all I know. Oh, and that they're going to do like a full recount or something. Um, Well, no, the... The head of the DNC, I think it's his name's Tom Perez, called for like a recount, but that's just because his candidate Biden uh, just got crushed, and so I don't know if that'll actually happen. But w- the thing, the funny thing about the app is, while I could be a, I could go conspiracy, I guess incompetence seems like an equally, if not more, plausible um, theory. Because, um, or explanation. Yeah, it seems like incompetence is by far the most likely explanation. Yeah. 
what would the conspiracy be even? Like, how would this work? Well, so the conspiracy, it starts when the, there was this big poll, the Des Moines Register poll, that um, is, is usually the thing that the media focuses on right before the caucuses that um, will motivate people to vote. Like if the poll shows your candidate kind of out of it, you might be motivated to stay home. And also, like, it's a big deal going to the caucuses. It's not like you go in there, sneak in, vote, and you're there for like a couple hours or like an hour because of the whole way the system is run. And and so, like, it's a big deal what that poll is. It's very influential. And the Buttigieg campaign just made a complaint so that they wouldn't release the poll. So that already got the online Bernie bros like me, not really, um, uh, wondering what was going to happen. And then you find out that they're using this app that Buttigieg gave a lot of money to the company that is run by a former, like a bunch of former Hillary campaign operatives you know, you could see the conspiracy where the conspiracy would come out of that. Hillary hates Bernie. The whole establishment. But wouldn't the conspiracy at least require that the that the app reliably report fake results? Like, like in what world is it good to have people doubt the results to, due to the software failure? We can't with caucuses. It's all takes place in public. Like, there's no secret ballot. You have to like stand where uh, with the person that that you're voting uh, that you're voting for under some big sign and so there's no way to really cheat using an app so i guess the conspiracy i i agree it doesn't totally make sense the conspiracy would be that they just wanted to fuck up the whole process because they knew that bernie was going to win and that biden was going to lose and Buttigieg, which was his only chance at making anything probably wasn't going to win either so just skunk the whole process make it kind of unreportable so that bernie doesn't get like a, a wave of momentum going into new hampshire and the rest of the primaries that's the idea you know, this is um, actually, I'm actually worried. Uh, I've heard a, a few people discuss this on tech podcasts. And the, I think the biggest fear that I have is that it, the, when something like this happens, it, it undermines people's faith in any of the electoral process, like in any of the voting systems. People are just are now afraid that, that their vote won't actually count that that the results are going to be skewed and in a nation where we've already we're already having fears about meddling in elections um having a populace of people who does not fundamentally trust the mechanism by which we're electing our leaders is is like one of the worst you know this is it's it's not good for democracy that's very earnest, Dave. <laughs> I, it's like as a as a as a deeply political person, I feel this at the core of my being. No, I mean I don't give a fuck to be honest. But <laughs> you weren't going to vote anyway, so you know. no, especially not for Bernie. <laughs> you all go ahead. Which of you is the Klobuchar fanboy? I know it's one of you, but I can't remember which. That's my brother. Oh, okay. He just thinks it's hot that he she throws staplers at staffers. <laughs> he's he's really into abusing subordinates. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So one upside might be people start asking questions about why Iowa gets to go first. Yeah, I think that that's over. I think this is done. Really? They had their, wow. Yeah. Okay. 
that's the sense that I'm getting from uh, people is because everyone was already asking those questions and now they have the perfect excuse to have a new system where different states go first or a different state goes first and it's not a caucus. Um, but yeah, to have a state, it's like 91% white, which is kind of amazing to have a 91% white state like in in today's America. <laughs> you mean you mean amazing as in great? Like, like is that what you're like saying? <laughs> packing up the family, moving there. No, uh, I mean, I live in the exact opposite kind of city. But, like, yeah, I think that might be over. Also, the caucuses. Do you guys know how caucuses work? Yeah, I do. I have little to no idea how any of this works. So you go there and you vote for a candidate at first, right? And then in your precinct, the candidate that you vote for has to have at least 15% support or else they are eliminated. So then you you everyone does their first vote and all this, including the first vote, I believe, goes on in public. And then um, and then afterwards, every candidate who didn't get 15 percent of the vote is eliminated. And the supporters now can choose a different candidate who they should support. So like your second choice actually matters in the way that it doesn't in primaries. And so once you're so let's say I was a Bernie supporter, but I'm in a precinct where Bernie didn't get 15 percent. Now I can join. I could be a Yang gang guy, except that he would have probably also been eliminated. So I would have had to choose between like Biden, Buttigieg and Warren or something like that or Klobuchar. So um, so that's how it works. It's kind of interesting in two ways one is the way that your second choice actually matters and the other in a way that it's it goes on in public and you know iowa has a lot of small towns you know like people will know who you voted for that's uh some people complain that it's undemocratic yeah isn't it also the case that you can show up undecided and just be like pitch me like whoever gets you know right whoever makes the best argument whoever promises to buy me a cheeseburger tomorrow gets my vote Exactly. Yeah, totally. It's uh, there's something about it that I kind of like, but I get all the objections to it. So it's like a version of ranked choice voting. Like, why don't they just have people rank their candidates? Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. No, like, why not have a one step process? (laughs) Yeah. Why not just do that? Yeah. Why have this arcane thing where you have to show up and stand around all night? Yeah, and first of all, you have to be able to make it at that time. And um, yeah. I, I agree. I can, I see the appeal of it, though. It's like it brings the community together in a time when that hardly ever happens and you're actually participating in an active way in, like, your civic life. So I, I, I see the appeal of it. Uh, if it weren't for the objections, I would... Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way about, like, finding this somehow appealing. It's just it has such an outsized influence on how the rest of the primary goes. Like, I forget the exact number. Nate Silver said on Twitter that their model, which is like empirically based on past elections, weights the Iowa caucus results at like some crazy multiplier of any other caucus or primary, right? It's like 10x or something like that. And that just seems insane. I agree. Yeah. And it's also one where you would want, I think like the primary would, if you do have to have a first one that will have that influence, it shouldn't be a caucus. One thing, though, that that 
seems clear to me to, to take away from the pros and cons of, of caucuses is that I don't think that there will, e- I don't think we should ever move to any electronic system of voting, um, at least not without always having a paper trail. And this is one case in which like technologists are surprisingly in agreement where they're like, you know, like crazy Silicon Valley people are way more like they're totally willing to say, oh, like airplanes should fly themselves and cars should fly themselves. And you're dumb not to rely on algorithmic solutions to your problems. But everybody is like, no fucking way. We should never have an election uh, using uh, electronic systems like that is just too prone to failure. Well, the caucuses are analog entirely, like in terms of how the votes are collected. It's just the the app was just for reporting it to the national committee. So they actually had a paper. They had paper. Thank God, right? Yeah, yeah thank God for Bernie and the socialist revolution. It's, <laughs> it's coming for you and your ilk. You just like it because he's like said that he was going to legalize, federally legalize marijuana on his first day. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, we've had that in Canada for a while. It's been great. You guys should look into it. Well, you guys don't run the world. We don't want people running the world high on marijuana cigarettes. We did decriminalize it here in Houston, so we there's that. But I love that you guys can just go and buy like you could just go, I feel like some edibles and you just go and just get a bunch of this. That's that's awesome. I'm jealous of that. Yo. You don't even have to go to the store. You can just go to the website and they ship them to you. They're there in like two days. It's great. I was all for that until I went to Vancouver with Tamler and he just, <laughs> just because he could, <laughs> the meetup was just complete shambles. Was, uh, yeah. I, now that I understand edibles more, having, uh, you know, like been to a bunch of these states, like the amount I took that night is insane. And then to just do more with those UBC students, God damn it. <laughs> Uh, well, never again. lesson learned. I think everybody's <laughs> made that mistake once. And some people more than once. <laughs> yeah. I, would, I put myself in that category. That's definitely not the first time that's happened. All right. Should we take a break? Do we have anything more? Who are you voting for, Dave? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know. I Honestly, I like Elizabeth Warren a lot. I went through that phase. I'm over it. I donated to her campaign and everything. Me too. And I went to a town hall of hers. Oh, wow. Yeah, I heard she's she seems very impressive in person. It's weird. She just all of a sudden the country just decided the country was excited about her and then just decided, yeah, you know what? Not I never mind. And I'm kind of in that group. So fickle. Yeah. Sexism. It's obvious sexism. <laughs> it is. <It's> a- <laughs> We should. We need to look for countries like Chile and Argentina to get over our sexism. She was. I, I don't think it was sexism. I just think she came off as a little shrill. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, any final thoughts, Yoel? Nope. I think we covered it. All right. When we come back, we'll talk about whether you guys should try to find different jobs. All right. Let's take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Don't answer that question, Dave, because I think you're just going to say, I'm I'm that something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your 
professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. Now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and of course anything that you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time, and there is no additional charge. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, uh, four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video, available on desktop, mobile, web, Android, and iOS apps. You can schedule video and phone sex sessions generally <laughs> weekly. <laughs> so. You what? said phone sex. <laughs> you can schedule video and phone sex. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. I, uh, that's between you and your therapist. <laughs> you could schedule, schedule video and phone sessions. Uh, generally weekly, unless your therapist schedules more. There's broad expertise in the network, which may not be available locally. And there is financial aid for those who qualify. One thing we want to note and emphasize, this is not a crisis line. No, in fact, you know, you can get therapeutic help in many, many ways. Like listening to this episode might be therapeutic for you, but we are also not. (laughs) You realize at least I'm not them. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Schadenfreude. But but uh, no, this is if you need a crisis line, please look up your local, uh, you know, your local and national crisis lines for all kinds of stuff. This is this is therapy, though. This is better therapy than um, than a lot of people have had access to traditionally. And. It's a truly affordable option. So even more affordable for listeners who are listening right now. Uh, Very Bad Wizards listeners have gotten a special deal from BetterHelp. You get 10% off of your first month with the discount code VBW. So get started today. Get some therapy. Get that mental health and hygiene going. Go to betterhelp.com slash VBW. You can fill out a questionnaire, help them assess your needs, and get matched right away with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Now I don't need two lips. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the predictable time of the show where we like to thank all of our listeners, all of uh, the people who get uh, involved in discussions with us, who reach out to us to tell us what they thought about an episode, who um, just contact us in various ways, take part in discussions. Uh, we really appreciate it all. Uh, we, we, you know, like this last, this last episode that we did was about David Foster Wallace. It was a topic that was solely driven by our listeners and you guys came through, you guys, uh, have, have been talking to us about it and, and we really appreciate that at every level. We, we like the discussion. So if you do want to get a hold of us, if you want to reach us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com or you can tweet to us if you have something that only requires 280 characters um, and you're sweet and to the point, unlike, unlike what this segment is going to be. <laughs> yeah. um, you can tweet to us at Very Bad Wizards or at Tamler and at Peas. You can rate us on iTunes. Uh, this is something that we sometimes forget to emphasize, but that is, I think, one of the best ways that people have of finding us if they don't know about us is that it, the more people that, that rate us uh, on I iTunes. I think it's called Apple Podcasts now. Oh yeah, it is Apple Podcast. Wow, yeah, you you've come through on some Apple knowledge that even I <laughs> tables have turned. Now I'm yeah. gonna like drop some recommendation for French cinema. <laughs> this is like some bizarro quantum world right now. Uh, so rate us on iTunes. Get involved in the discussion on our subreddit, uh, reddit.com/r/slash/verybadwizards. We have a lively discussion there. Uh, our Facebook page has been graciously saved by one of our listeners, right? Yep, David Lara. He is now running the Facebook page. Um, when I follow us on Instagram, and when I post on Instagram, or the rare occasions now that my daughter does. Um, Will it will post directly to Facebook because they're linked up, but he is also posting um, a bunch of other stuff, including links to the episodes and, for example, links to this paper. So sometime last week he posted the paper that we're about to discuss in the next segment. And, yeah, we really appreciate it. David Lara, thank you very much yeah, for thank you so bringing much. it back. And a lot of people seem to... To like it, it got a ton of likes. That that uh, his first post that that he was bringing it back. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Awesome. I'm going to ask him to to do my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. um, you can Tamler mentioned you can follow us on Instagram as well. So so all all the ways that you have uh, to to engage in discussion with us, to reach out to us, to engage in discussion with our fellow uh, with your fellow listeners, uh, we really appreciate it. Thank thank you all very much. Yeah, and if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, there are several several ways you can do that. And um, one of them is to give us a one-time donation on PayPal. We appreciate all of those. Another is to become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Um, our supporters mean so much to us. They give us ideas for topics. They even get to vote on a topic a couple times a year. Um, we're probably coming up in about a month or two to the next listener selected episode and that usually results not just in one episode but in several the david foster wallace one came in second place last time so um so yes become one of our patreon supporters there are you can get all of dave's beats um with a one dollar donation as well as ad-free episodes 
with a $1 per episode donation at $2 and up. You can get bonus episodes. You know what we should do next? We've been promising it. Top five Deadwood characters. Oh, yeah. 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 That would be fun. We'll do that soon. Deadwood is one of those things that I also just find it so easy to rewatch. Like it's there's no, there's no ba- barrier for me to just start up like a, the first Deadwood episode. It's great. I know. I was already th- I had I had that thought. We promised we got to do it, and I was already trying to figure out who my top five would be. <laughs> and it's tough. There's so many awesome characters. Yeah. And uh, Yoel, who is who's coming up on the second segment, he is probably going to join us for uh, a series of dark episodes uh the netflix series um bonus episodes so for season three uh, right yeah for season three when that when that comes out sometime in june so some good bonus stuff coming up um and for five dollars and up you will be one of those listeners who can vote on what topic we choose a couple times a year we appreciate all of you thank you so much in for all the different ways you support us and now let's get back to the episode all right, so let's talk about our main segment. But before I get into the details of this paper called The Generalizability Crisis by Talia Coney, this is really a broader topic, which is fundamentally about whether or not what psychologists do is actually giving us any knowledge about the human mind. And one of the questions that you can ask about this is, do the experiments that psychologists do in in you know, as we as we with labs um, conduct uh, these these experiments, testing hypotheses where we have stripped down uh, procedures and we have uh, quantitative methods and we do statistics. What does that say about human beings in general? How much can we generalize from what we do there? And that's the question that Yarconi starts with. And I'll just give a broad overview, and and Yoel, you can jump in because um, you're actually more of a of a nerd about some of the statistical stuff, especially. But Yarconi, who's from UT Austin, uh, has this paper, this new paper, where he's essentially arguing that, look, what we do as psychologists when we uh, try to collect data about, about human beings is we make these verbal claims. We say, oh, I think that... Um, uh, people who are easily disgusted are more likely to be conservative, right? To, to use an example close to home. But then what we have to do is convert that verbal claim, that broad verbal claim, into an actual testable, specific uh, hypothesis that is uh, that we can evaluate by operationalizing that idea. So by actually taking that idea and converting it to something that we can measure um, using uh, whatever... Uh, manipulations in the lab and then measurements in the lab and then we run statistics on it and he thinks that we're making a uh, a problematic leap when we go from verbal claim about how the mind works to specific quantifiable quantitative uh, experimental claim and then going back to extrapolating about how human beings in general work he thinks that this is um Uh, that we are not learning much, if anything at all, about how human beings work. What we're learning is something that, Tamler, you and I were talking about in our last episode. Maybe we're just learning what Cornell undergraduates uh, in the year 2020 who take this particular test uh, under these conditions, what they are doing, not about, in general, what the human mind is like. So he says we should actually 
um, be very wary about using psychological uh, experiments to generalize about the about all human beings. Is that a fair? Yeah, yeah. He has a right at the beginning of the paper. He, he says, if you run an experiment, technically you might draw the limited conclusion that priming undergraduate Plymouth students with 40 cleanliness-related words increases 21-point moral disgust ratings for six specific moral dilemmas. But, but really what the claims that are extrapolated out of that, and I'm guessing people are more disgusted. No, it's a, that cleanliness reduces the severity ratings, like how bad you think something is. Is that your study? No, but it is a real study. It, just to be specific about what his claim is here, like and this gets a tiny bit technical, but basically when you run these statistical models, you have to say which of the things that uh, you're observing you think are samples from a larger population that you want to generalize to. So participants, for example, we don't care specifically about the 200 people who happen to come to our study. We want to generalize to other people like them. And assuming that we get multiple responses from one participant, so those responses would be correlated for each other, we have to tell the statistical model that, that these come from the same person, and that allows it to appropriately adjust our confidence about whether the results that we observe in this sample are going to generalize to a new sample. And the argument that he makes is in the same way that we want to generalize from the specific participants that we ran to a broader group that they're theoretically sampled from. In the same way, we want to say our results here don't depend on these specific stimuli, right? They don't just depend on these specific cleanliness words. They don't depend on these specific moral judgment vignettes. We want to make a broader claim that says when people are in this mental state, this thing happens to affect their judgments, right? And so that's inherently, he says, a claim about not just those specific things that we used. And uh, the argument that he makes is that that's rarely ever modeled, that psychologists typically don't run their experiments in a way that allows you to model that uh, variability, and that if you do make some kind of plausible assumptions about what kind of variability might be associated with those factors, that it uh, means that we should be much less confident about the results of our analyses, right? Your uncertainty goes way up. So the analysis that was significant P less than 0.05 now isn't because we're now incorporating the uncertainty around these other things that we want to generalize to. To get to specific examples, we use like suppose that we're interested in evaluating a hypothesis about the what influences moral judgment. And we decide that we want to test people's moral severity ratings. Like, okay, are people harsher in their blame? And so I, Yoel and I come up, which we have done, we come up with a set of questions, a, a set of vignettes and a set of questions like uh, Tamler um, steals weed from his wife, right? Uh, and she doesn't know about it. And how much blame do you give Tamler? How wrong is what Tamler did? And so we come up with three or four scenarios in a typical study, and we come up with three or four questions for each of those scenarios. And it's we are never under the uh, we're, we're never doing this because we think that all we want to know is how people respond to those three scenarios. We want to sample of all of the moral judgments that you might make. What can give me a, a microcosm of moral judgment? What can I say is a good set of questions that would assess moral judgment in general? And so we pick those and we use those three. 
Yarkoni wants to say, well, we're doing our stats wrong because we have to accept that this is just a, a one random sample of all, all moral evaluation questions. And if we treat the statistics properly, what we'll find is that we've, we have radically under, uh, overestimated how powerful some of these phenomena are. And that the, the answers to the questions, those could be different if you just used a different scenario, but that's not built into the model. The model is assuming that those questions can stand in for uh, moral judgments more generally. Is that right? Yeah, that's, I mean, technically what he's, what he's saying is that the, we're misdescribing what the model is. So if you don't model the stimuli as a random factor, you're only entitled to say things about those stimuli. But we in our verbal descriptions say things that are more general. So it's like there's nothing wrong with a model per se, right? It's the link between what we want to say and what we've modeled. So you pretend, so this is where he talks about the fixed the fixed effect fallacy where you you actually do model it correctly, but if you go According to that model, you wouldn't be allowed to make the generalizable claims that um, psychologists make all the time. And if you did model it as a random factor, then you wouldn't get the effects or you wouldn't get anything close to the effects. And so there's really nothing – there's no way out of this according to Yarconi as I understand it. So if you did model it, stimuli as a random factor and all the other things variable thing of factors if you model them as random factors you don't get the results that you need i mean that depends um it depends on how much your effect varies across stimuli so it's certainly possible that that variance is pretty small and in that case it will matter less and specifically what you're talking about changing is not the point estimate of the effect but the standard error so your uncertainty around the effect and what he presents in the paper is kind of plausible ranges for what that what, what those variance components might look like, because often those experiments aren't run in a way that allows you to even determine what they are empirically because the thing doesn't vary. So, for example, if I only give you um, a single moral judgment vignette, then I can't tell how much variability there is between vignettes because there's zero because you only did the one. Right. And, and his point is that there's lots of things that could vary, that could be important. Most of those things aren't actually varied as part of the design. So the best you can do is kind of make some assumptions about how, how much variance might be associated with those. And then you plug those in and you say, like, assuming that the variance across units on this dimension is X, how does that affect our certainty about the estimates that we're getting? And what he shows in the simulations in these analyses, uh, rather, is that um, once you add like even like a moderate amount of variability due to this stuff, your estimates of the uh, effect get much less certain to the point where they're like mm, can be nearly uninformative, right? Where the model says like, well, it could be anything from negative infinity to positive infinity. I don't really know. That's the dilemma. It's that if you did model it in a way for not for every case but for most cases if you did model it in a way that would license the more generalizable claims then you the uncertainty would be too high right but i don't know that that so this certainly can't be an in principle argument this is an empirical claim right i mean this is right and and it's not as if psychologists don't use random uh effects models when when doing their studies we treat 
usually subjects as random effects models. Like we 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 are aware that that individual participants differ from each other, and that is a source of variability. Um, and so we we model those as as random effects, not always, but at times. And you know, you get what you get. You learn what you learn. You get the effect size. You get the variance estimate. Yarkoni's claim is that we just have we as a field should be treating stimuli uh, in the same way that we treat uh, individual human beings, and he thinks that would actually lower, um, like that would actually get us away from being able to make the conclusions that we make. And it's not just stimuli; there are other factors and opportunities for noise that also aren't modeled. Additional random factors that you could add to your model, but then that would just increase the uncertainty. I guess essentially what he's saying is that like our results are contingent on a specific set of things that we chose. Um, and we can't really know in advance which of those things are important or how contingent the results are. But we can make an educated guess that there's going to be a lot of variability that would undermine our confidence in this effect generalizing across those different contingencies, which I think is like something that when you get graduate training in psychology, you sort of intuitively realize that, right? You're like, well, you got to set up the experiment the right way or it's not going to work. That's where you learn as a graduate student is how to run the experiment the right way. Inherently, like the implication there is like, well, there's lots of ways that, you know, you might think that you could run this experiment that aren't going to work. Do you disagree with just this first part of his argument, which is that the way these experiments um, are currently modeled doesn't license the kind of extrapolation that psychologists do all the time. So if you're asking me that, like, I want to unpack the to the two different claims. So like one, does it license general claims and two, are the general claims being made all the time by psychologists? So, so one, I don't think that it licenses uh, blanket general claims about human beings, but two, I don't think that psychologists do that. Right? He seems to, to think that this is, how we think that we're doing our science. It, so what he thinks is a generalizability crisis really depends on whether or not we all assume that our experiments are giving us generalizable truths. And I think that that if you read most papers, aside from the, the sort of uh, titles that you talk about, that the cautions about in, over-interpreting how generalizable these results are are very, very clear, right? We could do a better job of saying this, but there is hardly a results section, uh, sorry, a discussion section at the end of a paper that doesn't have a very clear statement of the limitations of the conclusions that we can draw uh, from this. So it's not even just about rhetoric. It's about what we think that these studies are actually trying to do. Just to press that a bit. So we've done two papers recently, one about the trash talking study. And then the other one was about the, the link between being a moral person and comedy, right? And how funny you are. And that people who are uh, more moral are less funny. And so, and in the discussion sections, maybe they noted the limitations, the boundaries of what it is that their studies show. But they also have this section where they give advice. For that was the whole um, 
Dave, the whole thing about use inoffensive puns at work, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so to kind of make up for the fact that you're too moral to actually be funny. And then in the trash talking, the, 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 whole, the whole idea was... <laughs> I've tried that. Be, be, be aware of this when you're trash talking that you could actually be motivating um, the, your, your opponents. And if you're, a, if you're in management... And you are you your your workers are trash talking each other. You should know some of the effects of this. There is implicit in that this idea that this generalizes beyond the very specific study with the very specific measure, measures that they did. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's not that I don't think that authors don't don't say these things uh, often, and not not even that they're that they're often. Uh, wrong or or even fail to realize the limits of generalizability in in their own papers but but i think that yarconi is being a bit unfair about how much we go about doing that one and you know i i actually don't remember the discussion sections of of uh the trash talking paper but i think that what what's being overestimated is the degree to which even when pressed these psychologists think that that's what they're doing that they are actually making a, a, a claim about people in general um, across situations, and we can get into the specifics of of what I what we think they're doing, and this is where where um, I think we can have a fruitful discussion about what it is that we're doing with these experiments. But I don't think uh, I think that's a mistaken view of how psychologists think that we're we're making progress in science. What do you think about that, Yoa? I I feel like psychologists actually do that a lot, at least um, by implication. So I think there's a lot of studies that you wouldn't run if you really believed that your results were specific to this configuration of manipulation uh, and stimuli that you happen to choose. So I think the verbal overshadowing example is a great one where Yarconi says, just on first principles, it almost has to be true that sometimes you would get verbal overshadowing and sometimes you wouldn't because there's these different processes going on. Uh, cognitively, they can compete with each other. Memory encoding is noisy. Sometimes this other process is going to interfere. Sometimes this other process is going to help. And so if you really took that point of view seriously, you would start out by saying, I want to understand the circumstances under which verbal overshadowing um, happens and the circumstances under which it doesn't and the circumstances in, under which it actually has the opposite effect. So you describe and it actually makes your memory better. And that you would start out just running a study that uses one particular combination of these things and be like, look, we found the thing. And then that people would come and do this massive multi-site replication, just looking at that one instantiation, I feel like implicitly says we can learn a lot from that one instantiation. And I think Yarconi's point, which I think is right, is that we really can't. Well, we get, as an existence proof, we can, right? Well, what, well, existence proof maybe, but but I think existence proof is, is a... Um, is is not even the fair way to describe what we ought to be doing, at least. Which is, and the, here's where I'm going to talk about uh, Lakin's uh, blog post, which I think is an excellent an excellent reply, and one which I agree with largely. Um, where he says there's no generalizability crisis. So verbal overshadowing is the example that is used in the Arconi paper, and that is when um, if you're asked to remember a visual scene, um, and then you're asked to describe it verbally, somehow that that seems to interfere. 
uh, with your memory um, for for that visual scene compared to when you don't verbally describe that visual scene. If you have a theory, and this is this gets to the heart of what like what how we should be testing theories. But if you have a theory that says that. Well, memory processes should be improved in general by uh, a greater elaboration of the of the facts of the thing that you're trying to remember. So you have a, a theory that's that's that says like the more that you think or talk about a thing that you're trying to remember, the more your memory is is likely to improve. So you bring a bunch of uh, a super constrained population of people in. You know, you bring a bunch of sophomores into the lab, you give them uh, this set of stimuli and to show that verbal overshadowing occurs, that in fact, you have you have this situation in which the very thing that we thought was going to improve memory is is interfering with memory, then becomes a very interesting finding. Because if your theory was that, no, just the way memory works is is by you know greater information and greater elaboration of that information is going to improve memory. You've shown an interesting case in which it doesn't. Now, I don't think anybody who studies memory verbal overshadowing would say that like a gajillion things aren't at work in any instance in which you're trying to remember something. But the fact that under these these situations you can to falsify that claim is what an experiment is supposed to do. And if you think that your experiments are showing generalizable claims, then you've not been thinking about experiments, right? This is similar to like the classic JDM stuff, the Kahneman and Tversky stuff, where nobody would say that those scenarios, those decision-making scenarios that they give people are typical of things they encounter in the world. Right. But there's a kind of a very strong... Uh, normative standard to argue against or like theoretical position to argue against from economics where economic theory says people should do this and then they don't. And so therefore that's interesting, right? I guess my question would be, are there people prior to the verbal overshadowing work who were working in cognitive psychology and like in memory specifically who would have taken that position? Or is it the case that it's just our lay intuition that, yeah, talking about it should make your memory better. And that the reason that this study like had this impact is it contradicts the lay intuition, not um, what an expert would have told you. Well, the fact that it's a lay intuition, I mean, look, a theoretical claim has to come from somewhere. And there's no lack of theoretical claims that have not been tested yet, right? And so it's going to come from some kind of intuition, or at least you're using empirically derived findings and constrained conditions to try to figure out which of the general claims are right or wrong. And if you view it as as Dan Lakins does view it, he says, if you view science as, as proceeding by deduction and not induction, you realize that this is not a problem at all. Like this, well, it's a problem maybe in rhetoric and the way that we communicate our results, but not a problem about science. A couple of things. Number one, I don't think that responds to Yoel's original point, which is that with this particular experiment and with many experiments, you already know before running any study that you can get results that support both sides. You don't. That's not Tom. That's not Yoel's point. I know, but isn't that your point, Yoel? That uh, if you if you if you ha- uh, design a study a certain way, you can get uh, results that will support this general claim. And you can also get, and if you design it a different way, it'll support the opposite of that. Right. So that's what he says about verbal overshadowing specifically. 
other people have made that argument more generally. So like uh, McGuire, uh, Bill McGuire, who's like a super famous now passed away um, social psychologist, said exactly this, like basically that a sufficiently good experimenter can design an experiment to demonstrate support for a claim in its opposite. I don't think Yarkoni goes that far. He's like he's saying specifically to verbal overshadowing from first principles, sometimes it has to happen, sometimes it doesn't. It might be that that's wrong. It might be that prior to this verbal overshadowing research, like uh, cognitive researchers, people who study memory would have told you, no, rehearsing should always make people better. And I agree. If that is what most people thought, then the existence proof that it doesn't always make people better, that's super valuable. But it really hinges on, is that really what was believed? And that's, I, I don't know enough about the area to say. Well, you don't even have to make a claim that if that was what most people believed to know that the value might be that if they believe that they've shown an instance in which that's not the case. And that's that is certainly a piece of information that's that's valuable. Well, not if you could have known it before running the study, which but you couldn't have known it. I don't know how you think you would know that. But you could have for verbal overshadowing, right? How could you have known that, though? This is the claim in the paper that it just comes from first principles that you Yeah, have. that's that's the hand-waviest argument I've ever heard. What first principles are telling you that verbal overshadowing is in effect? I don't know. You, you seemed convinced by this. I thought that argument was plausible. So, like, I think that you can, from first principles of how the mind works, you can say, like, it seems extremely likely that we would get effects that go in different directions. And... I, I think that, like, in some cases, that's more reasonable than others, and you have to be, like, a kind of a content expert to know in which cases that's true or not. Um, I sort of trusted him there that, you know, I mean, the logic seemed sound. I don't know. Maybe some of the, like, premises are actually wrong, and a cognitive psychologist would be like, no, not at all. But I think there's a lot of domains in which it almost has to be true that sometimes a thing happens, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you get, like, the opposite. Tim, I can't think of any better episode, aside from the last time we talked about uh, psychology as a science, to mention our other sponsor for this episode, which is Prolific. If you want to test a hypothesis, it can be specific, it can be broad, you can generalize or you cannot. You need quality. <laughs> you can. You're going to need quality data. So I don't think that there's any uh, there's any debate there. If you even if you want to do purely descriptive research and and bring health to the field of psychology by by first doing some observations, you want to know that you can rely on the data source that you get it from. So if, suppose I want to test a hypothesis that young people and old people differ in uh, how well they process information about politics. Right. So. Um, with Prolific, what you can do is get one of their samples. You can even pre-screen at no extra charge, and you can pre-select a population of older individuals and a population of younger individuals. You can look at conservatives, liberals. You can look at African-Americans or regular old white folks. You can look at young old. You can look at students. You have any number of demographic uh, factors that you can pre-select in order to do whatever hypothesis testing or descriptive research that you want. 
One of the things that you don't have to worry about so much is uh, the risk of professional test takers, professional survey takers who have kind of overrun some of the other services. Prolific takes steps to distribute studies across all participants so you don't run into those problems with professional survey takers to the same extent you see on places like MTurk. The folks at Prolific use machine learning to improve the quality of their data and monitor their data and any feedback that they get from researchers closely so they also avoid the problem with bots. They also pay more than MTurk. They keep their survey takers happy and engaged. You can also engage in more complex forms of of data of experimental design by doing longitudinal or follow-up studies with participants with Prolific. Um, the, The attrition rates across participants are fairly low compared to other services. And Prolific has just launched a brand new tool that lets you collect samples that are nationally representative of the U.S. or U.K. So if you really want to make one of those generalizable arguments, then then at least uh, it's worth taking the extra time and effort to get samples that are nationally representative. So there is an offer for our listeners uh, for this year, Prolific really wants to reach out to you, whether you're a social scientist doing research, someone in charge of market research at a big firm, even just a high school student who's looking to do a science project for a fair and you want to do something on psychology. Prolific is giving away $50 to Very Bad Wizards listeners who want to give online sampling a go. Redeem your free credit here at prolific.co slash Very Bad Wizards. Again, that's $50 to Very Bad Wizards listeners who are starting a new account. Prolific.co slash Very Bad Wizards. Thanks to Prolific for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Even if we set this aside, the the Lakin's objection, which is that uh, science doesn't work by induction, it works by this hypothetical deduction model or theory. That idea is that you come up with a theory. It's not that you run an experiment to test some lay intuition. You're supposed to come up with a theory. That theory generates hypotheses and and out of that hypothesis, you can get a, a prediction. And for it to be valuable, it should be a surprising prediction that confirms your theory what no no wait what yeah well yes though that is how that's supposed to work but it has to be surprising and confirm if nobody has the theory in the first place uh, and you come up with an experiment that falsifies a hypothetical theory maybe that's valuable but that's not how that method is supposed to work the method is supposed to work. You gather information, you gather data, and you come up with the theory first, and then you test the theory. And if it survives the test, then it gets to live on another day. If it doesn't survive the test, then it's falsified. That's how this is supposed to work. But what you're saying is you take something that isn't even really a theory that anybody has put forth explicitly, and you falsify it. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. First of all, you have like what when you say theory come up with a theory it can be a very constrained prediction that you're deriving from what you know so you have a general understanding right you have a general theoretical understanding of how memory works you think that rehearsal ought to improve memory which is definitely a claim that memory researchers made like this is this this is not controversial at all this is this was the bread and butter of memory researchers and then you 
uh, design a study to test that theory under these conditions, and you show that at least under these conditions, that claim has been falsified. What's wrong? Like, what? How is that not following the exact hypothetical deductive approach that that uh, is being described by Liggins? Well, we disagree that somebody had a theory that would be so stringent and so general that they thought that a, a single study that showed results going in the other direction would falsify it. Now, maybe they did. I, I certainly, like, if you want to email me a paper where it shows that they had, that somebody had that theory, that's fine. I am also, I was also convinced that any reasonable person would think that the results could come out in both directions. So there, there was no theory that said it will always turn out this one way. It could be useful to figure out the cases in which it doesn't. Right. So it might be like the theory instead says, like, generally rehearsing should be, should improve your memory. And now uh, Schooler et al. are coming up with at least one example of when it doesn't. Right. And so if then if it's part of a broader, like a larger program of research where they're like, OK, well, what are the cases in which it does or it doesn't? Then we start to have like a more of a like a set of rules for when does the thing happen versus not. Right. The feeling that I get is that. Oftentimes, especially these sort of more newsworthy psychology studies, they just like stop with the disconfirming and then that's kind of it, right? They're like, oh, look, we found an exception to the general rule. Surprise. And, and then they go off and do something else. Well, I mean, this certainly happened with, with JDM stuff, right? Where, where uh, Kahneman and Tversky have this, right? So there is, and you can say that they straw man rational choice theory, and that might be the case, but... But those results were interesting, given that people did seem to believe that, uh, you know, humans were maximizers or, or they were making these rational choices. They came up not only with a set of experiments to show this exception, but with a broad general theory under what conditions you would expect these exceptions to occur. And to say that that wasn't science that was testing a theory is just would be ignorance of the theory that they claimed to, that they were testing. And well, that's an interesting case. Yeah. And to speak specifically to the verbal overshadowing. Yes, that's exactly what theory said. Right. And like, go read the original verbal overshadowing paper. They'll put it in those terms like you will. They will cite it. Right? Like, I just don't believe that, Tamler, you will believe that even if you read it. Well, it's sort of hard to believe some of the rational choice theorists that they held a position that strong just given what we know of human nature. They didn't think that. They just thought that those biases were small enough to ignore. That they would wash out. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot of the follow-up work... Um, tried to show that, you know, people had these biases when it mattered, like when they were incentivized, when they had a lot of experience, um, stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea of like, yeah, you got to start somewhere, right? And I think JDM is a good example of then like really building out that program of research to be very specific about when should it happen, when should it not, to even try and make point predictions um, about people's judgments, right? So that's like kind of an example of like what your Coney thinks that we should be doing, I, I heard you guys talk about this um, trash talking paper, and I do think that like there 
yeah, probably in the GD, they general discussion for those uh, for those who aren't in the know. General too discussion. Long to say. <laughs> Sorry, I do a nerd podcast. I do a nerd podcast. I don't. I'm not used to talking to the normals. In the general discussion, I'm sure they talked some about limitations, but like that's a paper in which you're not starting with like a strong theoretical prior. You're like, here's a phenomenon that we're curious about. We're going to instantiate it in a certain way. And then we're going to like it almost like why would you do the study if it were only about the specific circumstances, that specific design? You want to say something broader about the phenomenon people are interested in. So you can do it wrong. So does that mean that there's a generalizability crisis, though? Like because like it's not that there's not instances of people um, actually mistakenly making inferences about their data. Right. And, And lay people doing that once they read those shitty descriptions of the data. It's not just that they might have overstepped in the general discussion. They weren't using that method. There was no theory that they were trying to falsify. If at at best you can say that they had a theory that they were trying to confirm, which is something along the lines of people are motivated by... There was some mediator between trash talking and motivation, uh, hostile outgroups or something like that. And then this was a test of that theory that they tried. So they weren't trying to falsify something. They were trying to confirm, I mean, again, at best, their own theory. No, I think that to to be the fairest to them, and I, you know, this will, I guess, turn on how we're interpreting what they're saying, is I think that they took the lay intuition that people might have that trash talking is supposed to fuck with somebody's performance and they showed that at least under these conditions, trash talking seems to improve other people's performance. That the, the, the theoretical claim that they were testing, the verbal claim, was what is, what is probably widely believed if you just asked anybody who trash talks what they thought that effect would be. But I guess I just don't think that's how this model is supposed to work. You are supposed to collect data and then actually construct a theory and test it. You are not supposed to imagine what some people might think about something and test that. That sounds more like induction. You you don't have to collect data before you construct a theory. No, you don't have to. But you at least have to construct a theory and not just imagine what some other people might believe is a theory. When you're doing this, you're supposed to have uh, an idea in mind about what it is that you think is true and then subject that to tests. And if nobody's done that, then testing it is is I mean, it, it might be valuable, but it's not the it's not the way this model is this approach is supposed to work, as I understand it. But I think if you're charitable and you think that this is right, so when you say when we say theory, it doesn't have to be capital T. Right? You don't have to have a whole worked out view of how motivation works or anything like that. You can, you know, I think that that it's fair to say that the trash talkers were testing the claim, uh, the the theoretical claim that trash talking would demotivate, and they falsified it. Kahneman and Tversky were testing the claim that people are rational maximizers, and they found evidence that they didn't. The verbal overshadowing people were testing out a claim that rehearsal and verbal repetition of a a visual memory would improve memory, a claim that definitely had been made, and they found evidence against it. But all your examples, you're pretending that they're falsifying something. The way science is supposed to progress is, is that people make theories that they, with surprising predictions, that are confirmed. 
right? That's how this model no, is. Supposed. No, the model no, is science. No, yes. Not at all. Yes, no, the, mo- no. the model here is physics, and you have a theory, and the way that we are supposed to become more confident in these theories is by testing them. And in every one of your examples, the way you say that these people are doing their studies, it's like they're trying to falsify something. Tamler, that is what I'm, that is what Daniel Lakins and I are defending. Falsification is exactly what he means when he's talking about the deductive approach. But there has to be a theory out there that you are falsifying. Yes, there's a theory. There's a theory. What do you want from, what do you want other than the claim that verbal uh, rehearsal is something that would improve memory? That's a theoretical claim that's being tested. You can't test a, a like a huge theory of how the mind works with one specific experiment. You have to constrain your theoretical prediction to a hypothesis. And that hypothesis is the local, the local thing that you're testing. Your reason for believing that the theory is true has to just be greater than, oh, a lot of people seem to think this. Why? Otherwise, you're just testing random things that people might think. Like, that's not science. That's not building. That's You have a specific hypothesis that you generate. You're the one who is just defending the Yarconi claim that from first principles we would know everything. So take a first principle. Oh, no, I wasn't. So take the first principle approach, generate a prediction, and test it. It doesn't have to be. Testing intuitions, testing uh, lay beliefs, cultural beliefs, those are all fair game in the scientific method, right? You want to test the general belief that that, a bowling ball falls faster than a feather, you test that. Create a vacuum and you test it. I mean, I guess the question is whether you end up with anything satisfying if you just go around testing whether lay beliefs are accurate, right? Ideally, you would want to tie it back into a larger picture that puts these things into into context, which is where I think, Tamler, where you were going with physics is a, a theory that actually can make point predictions, right? That says we ought to see such and such deviation in the orbit of this planet um, if my theory of gravitation is correct. And then you observe it and you see, like, do you see exactly that deviation? That's it. That seems different, right? If the discussion is turning on how, how, uh, m- how much more precise physics uh, is and how much more precise their theories are, then like I, there's no you're not going to get any disagreement from me but to say that you're not theory testing and false to one claim that that confirmation is the is the way in which Lakins or I or anybody is, is who's doing the science thinks that it's proceeding is wrong right it is falsification and two if you just dis- if you think it's a shitty theory then you think it's a shitty theory then fine but the fact that you can generate a, a hypothesis from that broad statement is the way that it's supposed to be proceeding. And that's what people are doing. But then the goal is to generate theories that can survive falsification, at least, you know, for a while. The goal, if you're trying to understand the human mind and not just trying to just repeatedly show that people have no idea how the human mind works, is to build something where you can actually make some sort of surprising prediction. When I say this is how it's supposed to progress, this is how it's supposed to progress. You get a theory that generates hypotheses that then survive testing. They survive. They make predictions that, that are confirmed. That's super different than saying that, that it proceeds by, by uh, running confirmatory studies. It's valuable to falsify uh, a theory and to find out that you didn't know something that you thought you knew. But that just puts us back in a state of not knowing anything about 
the phenomenon in question. And so for it to progress, like for us to learn about the planets and how they and uh, and the solar system, we had to actually come up with theories that were that generated predictions that were confirmed. Yeah, like I actually think that like I am, as I've said over and over again on this podcast, is that one of my fears is that uh, confirmation bias is rampant and that when we think that we're properly testing a hypothesis, we're not actually doing it. That actually is a deep concern. I think you're still not fully getting grasping what I'm saying. So let me go uh, something Yoel said on his podcast Yoel, you can confirm if I understood this right. <laughs> or he can falsify. Or he can falsify it, yes. Confirm or falsify. Either is valuable. When you were talking about this specific objection from Lakens, you asked Mickey, is there even a single theory in social psychology that is something that will generate surprising predictions that are, that are confirmed? Can you think of a single one? And Mickey said, no, I can't. That's very different than these other sciences where the goal is to come up with theories that actually can generate surprising predictions. And they don't start, they don't like, oh, you know, some people think that Mars rotates like this, but we ran a study that shows that it doesn't. They actually come up with a model of how the solar system and the planetary motion is supposed to work, That and then they test that theory and and get something that actually works for a while. If you don't make that step where you actually come up with theories that can survive falsification, that's that's a problem. And I take it that however you want to interpret what scientists are doing, Yarconi is diagnosing that as a problem and saying something along the lines of, Yoel, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's the thing that will be virtually impossible to do with the current methods. Yeah, I mean, I I think what I was getting at when I said that to Mickey is, is it productive for us to jam our empirical research into this falsificationist framework that maybe arguably is only well-suited to more mature disciplines that can make uh, more specific predictions? And where the auxiliary assumptions are really well understood. And I, I think maybe that we're at a point now where we just don't understand enough of what's going on for that framework to even be useful. Um, so you can go around, you know, falsifying a bunch of claims that could come from some reading of some theory or that could come from intuition, but does that add up to something useful? Is that like an end that we should be pursuing, even if it's like formally meeting the like Popper's criteria of falsification? Like maybe that doesn't, the point always is to accumulate knowledge, right? And to ultimately, I think, be able to understand and predict. And if it doesn't add up to that, then then why do it? Um, and I, I guess I'm perhaps more negative than David is about our ability right now to do that about about people's behavior. So I think it's maybe more productive to do descriptive work and then do like really kind of focused studies on exactly the thing that we care about. So like getting back to the JDM stuff, which is a literature that I like 
love and and think is like quite a strong literature, you take that stuff into the field, David, you know, like half the time it doesn't work, right? It's like um, loss, gain versus loss framing. Like we know that there's a ton of research showing that like people attend more to losses than to equivalent gains. And yet you do the field study where you frame something as a gain or a loss. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't work, God knows why not. Right. So that's kind of, I feel like the stage that we're at. And if you're at that stage, then maybe it's best to say, oh, whoa, let's take a step back from this like super formal hypothetical deductive framework and just say like, let's see what's out there. Let's try and describe that accurately. And let's say like in a very specific situation, what effects might we be able to to generate by changing this or that thing, which sort of gets around Yarconi's objection because then we're trying to just saying like, well, if you contact people by direct mail and you're trying to get them to sign up for this program to lower their energy bill, then this framing works better than that framing. And then you might be like, well, maybe if we have a similar program somewhere else, that would also be a thing to try, but no guarantees, which I feel like if we're being like realistic about where we're at, that is where we're at, right? Like that is... That's what you get from field studies is the thing that you really thought should work. It's like, well, didn't work. Don't know why not. Look, like I ended that the last discussion we had on this by saying that oftentimes the only thing we can learn from some studies is exactly under what those conditions, what will happen to those people, right? And that's why those might be the most valuable. But this is not Yarconi's objection. Like Yarconi isn't making this broader critique. Yarconi is saying that the experiments that we do uh, he thinks we're in a crisis of generalizability. He's not making these other critiques of the science that we've talked to about at length, right? Like I actually think that, look, it could be that the falsifiable uh, prediction of of our local theories are giving us uh, results that don't feed into the predictability of human behavior outside of the lab. Like that could very well be the case. But what Yarconi is saying is that he thinks that we're doing experiments in order to generalize from the results of that experiment. And that's a different critique. We are at an early stage. And, and again, like I think that the, the descriptive research that these other sciences went through is something that we've uh, like skipped, right? And so all of that would yield better theories. And those theories could then be tested properly with a falsifiable experimental paradigm. It's so we could be wrong in what we're trying to falsify, but that's a different, that's a very different argument than what your Coney's making. Yeah. So I, I feel like this is then difficult to talk about because like he would say, look, people are making these very broad claims in the title, in the abstract, in the general discussion. And they're like, you know, footnote, footnote, caveat in one paragraph of the GD. And then other people would say, no, of course, it's understood that we just meant under these circumstances and future research has to blah, blah, blah. And it's like you kind of bog down and... Yeah, but let's take a descriptive paper, right? Let's take a purely descriptive paper. This is not gaining us anything in terms of, of right generalizability. Like say, say that I observe uh, a bunch of, of kids in the playground to see how much they cooperate. This is not buying us anything in terms of generalizability. At least you're being honest about what you're doing. The descriptive doesn't get you out of this. Right, yeah. right. You might say like descriptive by its nature makes it more salient to the reader that this is like local to this specific context, whereas experiments are by, by design abstracted. And part of what people take away from that, rightly or wrongly, is that it applies more broadly. Um, so I this ties in like kind of interestingly to a piece that I wrote recently, but that isn't available yet just to like kind of self-promote in advance about stereotype threat, 
where, you know, stereotype threat researchers, they wrote an amicus brief in uh, Fisher v. Texas, I think, saying it's been shown that stereotype threat has these wide ranging and pernicious effects on the performance of minorities. And that may be true or not, but what they're basing that on is these very specific lab studies, these lab studies that have been designed to elicit stereotype threat effects. And in fact, when you do bigger field experiments, you often get really mixed or null results. You know, one big problem, which I'm interested in what you think about, one big problem was that those studies themselves weren't showing what they thought they were showing, right? Had they been then maybe maybe we would have evidence of the pernicious effects because under the control conditions of test taking a standardized test with a stereotype threat, I think you would be testing that. In fact, you would have evidence that might lead you to an amicus brief. They just false positive the shit out of that data. Well, so even if you can get it in the lab, that doesn't mean that it translates to an actual high stakes testing situation. That's my point. That's an inferential leap, right? That you you have to give evidence for that, I think. Yeah, but like I would believe that under the conditions of bringing in college students to take GRE uh, questions um, in a quiet room where you have them fill out their uh, race and ethnicity or gender, that that is really close. Like I, I would put like money on that that is a, exactly the kind of condition that I would be more comfortable inferring what would happen under those strict test-taking conditions. So had they actually had a body of evidence Right. They just this was selective reporting, controlling for tons of shit. This was like a. But Dave, when you say I would put money on that, like, is that like a face validity kind of thing? That seems like a a relevantly similar college students taking GRE scores in a quiet classroom, asking for demographic information and and like in under conditions where they know they're being evaluated. I think that is uh, like much closer to the conditions that we're trying to predict, right? It's not perfect. It's not the same, but it is pretty damn close. I would say that market would, you know, I would put money on any study that tried its best, right? Because the population of questions that are being evaluated with, like we have access to like a bunch of GRE questions. We have access to a bunch of SAT questions. So I don't think it's that much of a leap. It's still, I, I don't know that I would ever file an amicus brief about it, but but I think that the 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 huge problem with stereotype threat wasn't that they weren't proceeding, you know, via, like that they were making errors in generalizability. I think if you believed all of the data that they said they had, it wouldn't be that much of a leap. I don't know. I mean, I guess and now we're back to dueling intuitions, right? I, I feel like one thing that's super different is the stakes are a lot lower. But if you could have like 10, 10 things different and one thing different, like you're, you're right. Like I'm not going to die on this hill. But, but like, I think that, that wouldn't you be more confident it had all of, like, if it were a real finding, like not, they weren't even finding that really in those conditions. <laughs> the argument that I try and make in the, in the paper is that going to the lab first is, is, is the problem that what you should do first is try to observe the real world thing that you care about, especially in a case like this, where then we don't have to make these guesses about like, well, does this mirror the real world accurately or not? Like you should be able to see some evidence of this in real world situations. So for example, if stereotype threat really does depress the performance of, uh, let's say, racial minorities or women, then the test should be differentially predictive for uh, different groups. So they should systematically under predict the performance of uh, racial minorities, let's say. So that. That is purely observational, right? But that would like 
make you more confident than about then going into the lab and saying like, okay, what's the mechanism here? Right. And the fact that they started with the experiments where you are just by nature free to engineer a situation, like maybe it has to do with the choice of items, right? That, that later became clear that they were like, well, they have to be items that are difficult, but they're not so difficult that, um, that, you know, you're at floor and all of this sort of seems reasonable. And like, I don't know how much of it is like just post hoc kind of like p-hacky sort of stuff. But like, let's say it's 100% replicable and they're like, well, it only works for the moderately difficult items. Well, is that representative? Like, you know, is the the content that they encounter on the actual high stakes test similar to that? You know, maybe not. I mean, they chose those items specifically because they were like, oh, these are the items that work, right? So again, you're, that, that is a question of generalizing. Yeah, but this is a nice example because you can get old GREs and old SATs and you can actually use those. And so if it were only the moderately difficult items, you could calculate the bottom line effect on these, on these students. I think that like all of the other problems, like all of the other reforms that we've been working on, which is are about p-hacking, pre-registering, cutting down on, on research degrees of freedom, uh, um, transparency and reporting, file drawer problems, all of those which are separate issues could have done so much to prevent us from ever making the leap that this is actually a pernicious like problem in, in standardized test taking because we wouldn't have found those things. Can I just ask clarificatory question for Dave? So how do you understand what they were doing there? Were they trying to confirm their own theory about stereotype threat or were they trying to falsify a theory um, that there is no stereotype threat or something like wh- how do how do you how do you conceive of what their their intent was here? I mean, I think they were testing uh, a theory that's that said if if I you know if I recall correctly they're they're testing a theory that stereotypes uh, generate a you know a particular like they're priming a particular set of of beliefs that are. Th- threatening and that could have an impact on on tests and so i think that they were trying to confirm that right which is probably not the best way to go about doing this so then here's what i take to be yarconi's point there it is if you frame it like that like i have a theory and i am testing it in this way the problem with that is the results of that test and in this case provided provide so little confirmation that it just doesn't provide any confirmation. Right. You know what they found was they 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 found falsify like they falsified <laughs> they falsified their theoretical claim and didn't report it, right? Which is just a problem of of dishonesty and that's the falsification that I think should be, yeah. That's fraud. But let's say they had done it. Well, I you know, I don't want to call it fraud like Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's just bad bad practice. It's confirmation confirmation bias. Bad practices. Best case scenario, good practices, like the best psychology practices that are existent right now isn't the point that it still doesn't really get you much confirmation because it's something you would expect to turn out different ways depending on the situation anyway. And so the fact that you can find one case of it isn't now. And I take Lakin's point is, well, that's just how the shit works. You have a theory and you test it until it's falsified and then you discard it. But but like the way this is conceptualized is if we can just get this one test, then this theory is pretty solid. Like we've established a phenomenon. I mean, I think so. This is what this is a point where where maybe Lakin's is is being too 
um, strong about his claim. So like, like the descriptive claim about are psychologists doing the hypothetical deductive falsification? Uh, are they using that method? Well, if what you mean by are they using that method is do they seem to believe that that's what they're going about doing? Maybe, maybe he's wrong. Maybe that actually isn't like how, how psychologists are seeing that. And maybe you could actually do coding of a bunch of like, uh, you know, intros and discussions and see whether or not they view what they're doing as, as proceeding via falsifiability. And it might be the case that, that no, most people are actually doing it wrong by, by seeking confirmation for, for the, and, but if you're doing it right, if you're, if, if in fact you are proceeding with the attempt at creating specific conditions to test uh, the falsifiable claim, then generalizability is not a, in the way that Yarconi is is concerned about is not a problem because you wouldn't ever think that that's what we were trying to do in the first place, right? So it's like more of a like a sociological descriptive point, maybe yeah. But if we if that's what experiments are understood to do, like falsifying, then it doesn't matter that they're under constrained um, conditions. I, d- I just don't. I don't feel like that's often what we're doing or or we're sort of having our cake and eating it in that like psychologists are happy to be quoted uh, talking about current events, right? They write pop books, they go on these speaking tours, they give people life advice. And it's not like, well, we found that in this one specific situation, uh, we failed to disconfirm that whatever, right? It's like, no, uh, to be happier, um, pet your dog more or whatever. Yeah, so I get that. Like you and Tamler, like you're you're making this. I think a good point, which is something that I wasn't granting at the beginning, which is that the way in which we are talking about our own science probably is irresponsible. But that, like, then let's separate the way that we think we're we're like the knowledge that we think we've accumulated, which is all this generalizable stuff, um, it, from whether or not we we have learned anything from our experiments. And if you view what we're doing with our experiments as trying to uh, generate hypotheses that can then be falsified, then you are not under this danger of generalizability, right? So it boils down to a rhetorical claim. It's, it's not that the data that we're generating is useless. It's rather that um, when we don't realize what, what the nature of the data we're generating, uh, generating is, then we irresponsibly make uh, generalizable claims. Can I ask a question on this front? So one of the things that Yarconi said in response to this kind of uh, objection, the, the Daniel Lakin's objection, is it would render p-values and a lot of statistics, it would turn that into something that is purely rhetorical. It's window dressing. It doesn't actually mean what it's supposed to mean because either your your prediction was it was confirmed or it was falsified but the p value part of it doesn't doesn't actually matter except that it might make it seem i don't know make it look better but i don't fully understand that can someone explain i don't think that's right um now i haven't read this twitter back and forth and uh, now i'm totally unknowledgeable about what was actually said here but you know the reason you want the p value is to see like well were the differences that you observed um expected under chance alone right that's what the p value tells you um and i think that yarconi's point was when we try to go beyond what the model tests in our verbal claims then the p value becomes irrelevant 
right? Because the verbal claims don't match up with a model anymore. And then again, we're at this disagreement about like, what are the verbal claims people are making, right? And as long as you restrict yourself to what we tried to do here was test one prediction of the theory, which says that under all circumstances, this should happen. And we found that with these specific stimuli, it did not happen. And therefore, or I guess vice versa, our theory says that in this case, this should happen. And uh, it did happen. And therefore, our theory is supported, you know, if if you if you're narrow enough about your claims, then the p-value is meaningful um, on on its own terms. Although it, the the issue is with a positive result that then you have the problem of like um, like I'm not sure that inference is warranted, right? If your theory predicted X, but lots of other things predicted X as well, should that make you a lot more confident in your theory? Probably not, right? So like that's a whole other like can of worms. But it, and how do you determine what X is? It's not like you're predicting the exact ratio of or or the exact number on the Likert scale that's averaged, your prediction has to involve some like some threshold that we can call the prediction confirmed and some threshold where you can call it falsified, right? Right. Yeah. So you would you and maybe you would predict a rank order or you would predict that the point estimate is going to be in this zone. Um, you can test all of those using like a, you know, p-value um it's kind of like the classic statistics that we all learn in grad school as opposed to like fancier bayesian stats they can tell you that they can tell you like well is this significantly higher than that or does this as this value that we observe differ significantly from this other value that we're positing for example is it in this range it can tell you that so my understanding of of the way in which we're using significant testing is, is, is significance testing is that it really does have to be tied to a particular way of making inferences about what you're doing, and that way has to be something like you conduct an experiment and you know you do your best to say right. Um, I'll just pull an example, right? A, a memory study where uh, you say I'm going to give you 20 words to memorize. And uh, I'm going to create two groups. One is a group where I just give them 20 words to memorize, and then I assess their memory um, a bit later. And another one is um, a cold presser task where I give you 20 words to memorize, but before I do that, I make you stick your hand in ice cold water. Right? I have a theory that says that um, when you're aroused emotionally, you should have better memory. And so you're, you are... Now, using the p-value, when you get those two numbers, how many words did they remember in the experimental group and how many words did they remember in the control group, I'm testing whether or not in a world where I am wrong, right, in a world in which this makes no difference, what are the chances that I would have found this particular finding, right? What are the chances that my experimental group would have, would have yielded a number that's this high? And what that's telling me is, well chance at, at this arbitrary level that we've set it at, it would be less than 5% chance that that, that would happen, right? So unless you, tie that, unless you tie the significance testing to this particular way of going about um, doing, doing your science, then it, yeah, it can't. What it cannot at all tell you is how many people in the world are going to remember things more when, when they're emotionally aroused. Like they can't tell you that, right? And I think Toll's point is that the p-value is tied to those specific things unless you specifically model variation in them, right? So it's tied to the words that you used and the test that you used and all of that stuff. So if your approach is that you're, that you're comfortable saying that the results of this very constrained test are going to yield information about whether my theory is true or not, then that's not a problem, right? But if you are going about, if you're trying to say, 
And I think that everybody in the world who's emotionally aroused will remember any piece of information better and, and emotionally aroused in any way or whatever like that, then you are doing it wrong. You're, you should not be inferring from this particular experimental methodology and this particular way of statistical uh, testing that, that, that this is going to be generalizable. I think it's a good cautionary uh, uh, tale about reminding us what we shouldn't be able to infer. A question is, is, are we in a crisis about that? Maybe we are because we keep talking so Im- Im- irresponsibly about our, our findings. Maybe that's the crisis. But I don't think it's a crisis in the methodology. All right, now let's take a moment to thank one of our favorite sponsors, GiveWell, the organization who researches charity to help you maximize the impact of your donation. Dave, we've been doing spots for GiveWell for a while now, and this past season, podcast listeners like you gave over $500,000 to GiveWell's recommended charity. And GiveWell has asked us to thank all of you for helping to support some of the most effective charities in the world. GiveWell spends more than 10,000 hours each year searching for outstanding charities, but that only matters when donors like you act on their research and give. And you know, just because it's not the holiday season anymore, that doesn't mean Peter Singer's argument is all of a sudden unsound. Wait, it's all it's it's actually it's relevant across the year. <laughs> it's right. It's Sorry, yeah, it's not just November and December. <laughs> uh, you can still donate, and your donation will make a big impact. You can be sure of that. How can you have that confidence? Well, GiveWell conducts in-depth investigations to find charities that dollar for dollar are saving or improving lives the most. These donations will be used to distribute things like malaria treatments, insecticide-treated bed nets, or vitamin A supplements, programs that can save a life for every few thousand dollars donated. GiveWell uses academic research, interviews with charity representatives, and site visits to estimate which charities can give donors the biggest bang for their buck. They keep their recommendations up to date to make sure that their recommended charities can still use additional funds effectively. That means that donations at any point in the year, including now, will be put to good use. So to find out how much good your donation can do, go to givewell.org. There you'll find all of GiveWell's research for free, as well as a short list of the most effective charities they've found. You can donate directly through their website, and they charge no fees and take no cut. Thank you, as always, to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. I I have two other questions on my end. The first is, he has this section where, you know, what should we do uh, about this? One of them is just do something else. Don't be a psychologist. So set that aside. <laughs> As you guys said, like that's not going to happen for tenured psychologists. Well, clearly I'm a podcaster now. I have to spend more time. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. You at least have an out. Both of you have an out, actually. So uh, that's good for you. Bad for these uh, other poor psychologists who don't have podcasts. But then uh, the, they all do know it, except that they're all like really successful <laughs> because they spend all their time podcasting. So um, another option was to do more qualitative research. And, you know, this is something, Dave, you and I have talked about a lot that and I think even you agree, despite your highly defensive 
stance on this episode. You mean my rationality and not <laughs> yeah. just laying down? You know, I feel like Mickey and Yoel laid down a little bit early on this in their in their episode. They're like, yeah, he's right. Our science is not a science. Well, Peace. they had been softened by that other one, that book that you guys read for the against experiments. Yeah, that's right. So those those episodes are sort of like they're a pair almost, right? So we went in kind of skeptical more than we would have been otherwise. But then he says, do more qualitative research. Great. I love that. You know, it has a kind of humanistic vibe to it. And then he says, and this is what I want to understand better than I do, that actually a lot of these experiments are just qualitative research, but then with a lot of numbers thrown in because <laughs> to make it look sciency, which of course is something that appeals to me. If it's true, I just don't fully understand what he means by that. Yo, I'll take this because I actually, that's, I think that's a good point. <laughs> like, hey, we've been doing qualitative research this whole time. Like, just hey. pretending it's quantitative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's qualitative research is just describing, hey, under some circumstances, people do this, right? I went to a park. I saw people do that. And I think what he means by that is that when the statistics don't actually test the verbal claims that are being made, then what you're doing is just making some verbal claims and the statistics are sort of irrelevant because they're testing a question that you're not actually asking. So then all the flaws of qualitative research are, are still there except there's pretense that it's not? That's what he's saying, yeah. Good. And if you both agree with that, that's awesome. <laughs> the second question I had is about the current emphasis on replicability, which is something that he talks about, too, and something that I've thought a lot about. If he, if he's right or even close to right somewhere, if he's as right as Yoel thinks he is, is this emphasis on replication and, and replicability, is that a mis? guided effort. And so the analogy I was thinking of is if you have, say, I don't know, like engineers are working on an airplane and the engineers are working on the parts and the parts that they're working on are only useful for that airplane, but the airplane has this massive design flaw, it, it, it won't allow it to fly. And so the engineers now are spending all their time working on perfecting the parts but no matter how good they can get the parts working, the airplane will never fly. And so they're kind of wasting their their time in doing that because the only worth or value of those parts are if the rep, if the no, sorry, if the airplane uh, is designed well enough for it for it to work in the first place. Does that make sense? Does that analogy make any sense? Yeah. So, Yoel, I want you, I'm going to give Yoel a chance to chime because they talked about this very thing on their podcast about the value of like. There is an an ironic twist that <laughs> that uh, Yarconi is arguing, but I don't even know that you need. Uh, as much as I love your metaphor, Tamler, I think it can easily be said without the metaphor that if if it was a worthless experiment at time one, it's going to be a worthless experiment at time two. Right. It doesn't matter that you've repeated it exactly. <laughs> that is a con more concise way of expressing right. the point. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So so he comes out like surprisingly um, on is if you uh, if you had to like 
like place psychologists who you know on this continuum of how pro, how bullish they are about direct replications. Um, and I would have, I would have before this put Yarconi as one of the people who would be in favor of this. But as Yoel and Mickey pointed out, like no, this leads him to the complete opposite conclusion, which is that softer, what, they call, what we call conceptual replications, are what matters. That direct replications, all you're doing is testing crap twice. Yeah, so so he pushed back pretty hard on us about that, and I oh I, did he? Oh, oh yeah, good. on Twitter. Yeah, he was. I I forget what he called conceptual replication. God, now I'm afraid about Tal. Tal, please be nice to me on Twitter. I'm not as smart as you. Uh, he he doesn't <laughs> listen to podcasts, so <laughs> okay, we're fine. Okay. We're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, he was he was intensely critical about conceptual replications. So I think what he would say is is we need both. Um, and specifically, we need designs that systematically vary the things that we think might matter. And he cited in his paper, um, a paper that I hadn't read that came out in PNAS where they tried to do exactly that. They were looking at a, like a linguistic priming effect and they systematically varied a ton of different things about how it was set up. And they tried uh, to figure out, well, is there – are there differences between like the things that we varied in terms of whether they matter or they don't for the effect? And can that tell us something about why the effect is happening or not? And I think that's what he would want for these big multi-site um, replications. I think he thinks of it as a wasted opportunity to, to not vary more factors about the design to see under what circumstances do you get it, under what circumstances don't you. So that's really different from conceptual replications where you're sort of in an ad hoc way being like, well, we tried changing this, right? It's like very systematically trying to change a bunch of things that you think might matter um, all at once to see, you know, what affects the results and what doesn't. I'm not sure I understood the answer. So so what's conceptual replication versus versus just regular replication? Right. So Yoel and I did a study um, back in a few years ago with Tom Gilovich and Dan Ariely, where we actually um, were interested in whether people will self-harm, like will, will people be uh, uh, punitive to themselves physically when they feel guilty about an act? So we actually had people right about a time they did something bad and they were given the opportunity to shock themselves um, more severely and we showed that uh, people who wrote about a time that they did something immoral were giving themselves bigger shock. So now you can directly replicate. If somebody doesn't believe the study, which they might have grounds to not believe, um, you, you would, they would do exactly what we did. Use our materials, use the shock machine that we used, give the instructions. That's the direct replication because because they want to know that we weren't p-hacking, that we, you know, that we didn't selectively, right, all that stuff. So a conceptual replication would be like, well, let's use a, a different, like they, they're making this claim in general about guilt. So let's let's actually have somebody do something in the lab that they feel guilty about, and then let's give them the opportunity to do a, another task that might bring them pain, like stick their hand in, in ice cold water and see if it's longer. So it's your point, Yoel, you'd want to do the the first replication, the sort of exact replication, just to make sure that the effect was really there. Then you would want to do the conceptual re uh, replication to begin to, in a tiny way, address the Yarconi problems that there could be different stimuli and there could be all this other kinds of, of noise that are random. And so you would want to kind of just move out of that quickly and try to use different stimuli and still get the same result. Is that the idea? And that would be, that part is the conceptual replication. Yeah, sort of, although I don't think he would 
I don't think he would like the term conceptual replication for that because you know, what he really wants people to do is to vary all these things within one experiment so you can statistically model how much variability is attributable to changing these different things, right? And if it's just like I run as one-offs, you know, here's one experiment that does um, shock you would give yourself. Here's another experiment that does sticking your hand in ice water. Here's a third experiment that does, you know, how hard do you pinch yourself? You can't then model, you know, how much variability is attributable to those different tasks. It has to be kind of randomly assigned all within the same study. Why? Uh, it, it's just the, the way that the, the model is set up. You need to have other things equivalent, basically. Um, so, yeah, you can't, like, uh, estimate that variance correctly if you're doing it across other studies where other things are varying, right? The model has to be told what are, what are the things that are changing and how specifically for each, you know, observation that you have in your data set. So that's, that's pretty different from how we've done conceptual replications, which is more as this like one-off. And, and they have other problems as well, which is that if it, you know, is consistent with your hypothesis, then you're like, great, theory confirmed, theory supported, I should say. If it's inconsistent, you're like, huh, I must have done that wrong. And you don't publish it, right? So it has a, it, it, it more so than many other techniques kind of lends itself to this motivated reasoning of like, well, if the experiment fails, then you don't really think of it as disconfirming because you can always be like, well, that was an invalid extension. You just did it wrong, right? Yeah. So then do you think that about replication? I think we're going to get to a point where it becomes increasingly less useful to have very specific estimates of the um, very constrained effects like constrained in terms of their generality. Yeah. And I think now that we're doing these big multi-site studies, we should start thinking about varying features of the study so that we can say more about how much does stuff vary across these changes that we might make. And that lets us start thinking about like how much should we expect this to vary across contexts. Right now, we, there's, there's really no way for us to estimate that in kind of a traditional design where you don't even vary the thing that, that might be causing changes. Yeah, not like not to get too inside baseball, but something like stimulus sampling is a real problem, right? So, so using this the, a particular set of items like about moral judgment, right? I say this is a problem in moral psychology. Actually, like you, we use like should you know is it immoral to fuck a dead chicken, right? And people use just that over and over again, and they make claims about moral judgment. When in a, it would be nice in a in one study to systematically vary, like have like I have Tamler, have Yoel, give me. Uh, what they think are prototypical instances of of a moral violation, you send them to me. Like we, I collect a bunch of those from people who who don't know about the hypothesis, and I systematically vary which ones my participants get right, so that I'm not just testing the thing that keeps giving me results, right? So that I am being more objective. So now I can actually uh, give a quantitative uh, estimate of. How how is how generalizable is this effect to all moral judgments? Um, and we don't do that enough. It's hard to do. And when you do the math about like how many how many items it would take in order to like generate a decent estimate, damn near like unfeasible uh, to do. But that's the kind of thing that I think he, he would want. But I think that we like to get back to stereotype threat. If we had had people doing direct replications, we would have learned earlier on that we shouldn't take it seriously, right? 
Yeah, so that's why I think these things go hand in hand, right? Like, and it, you can't really, you can't say anything meaningful about generalizing if they, you, there's actually no effect. <laughs> it's not an effect, right. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like that, it would just stop the, it, like the train would stop because the only right. evidence that we have for the the support for this theory is actually nobody can replicate. There's there's nothing there. But the question is whether you should have taken it seriously in the first place. Whether the, the problem is further back. And so, yes, this gave you the additional information that you shouldn't take it seriously because the effect wasn't real. But but to me, that comes first. Right. So like you can argue about like how broadly can you generalize and a critic might say, well, it's only for these items and for this specific subject population. But if there's no effect, then it's like the argument is moot. Right. But if you are devoting resources to replicating that study, you wouldn't want to do it if you didn't think even if it was replicated, it wouldn't tell us anything in the first place. Right. That's right. Even Yarconi would think that it tells us something about those particular subjects in that particular experiment. So so I think that that's actually a much, a much more um, important fear to have, which is that like many of the studies don't even show us the specific thing because uh, because we've been doing it wrong like it, all this time. So I think that like we we don't even have as a science like maybe we should burn it down to the ground and start over again um, and maybe start with more descriptive research and then and then build up to experiments. But um, we don't even have a good sense of which of the specific specific effects are actually real. You know, I can't like if I had to estimate all of the experiments that I've done, like which ones of those are, are, are real. Like I, I admit to being a little like, you know, I kind of want people to go around replicating. So this is funny. Like you brought up this uh, guilt and shock study, right? Um, and that's one where I'm like, boy, we ran those people one at a time. And I know that I did interim checks on the data and all of that stuff. Assume all that stuff is not an issue. And this effect is like 100% solid. I'm still like now having read the Yarconi paper and thinking about it. I don't know that I would run that study. Because is it interesting, really? Like, you know. Oh, yeah. See, that's the reason I brought it up even to begin with is because when Tamler was asking his question, I was thinking to myself, well, here is a case where we didn't have a full blown theory that we were trying to disconfirm. But it was the case that in all of the literature on guilt, there is a case where uh, Roy Ballmeister, who had written this exhaustive sort of uh, lit review on guilt, had said, um, I don't think that's that would happen. Like nowhere have I seen any evidence that guilt could lead to self, self-harm directly. And just, just that we observed it, even under these constrained conditions, I think is an interesting, right? This means that it can happen. Now, would I run it because I may not run it because I'm not that interested in the topic, but I still think it's, it's the demonstration is a valuable one if it's true, which. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't remember that Baumeister thing. Yeah, I don't even know if we talked about it, but I remember talking to him about it. Yeah. The way that I thought about it at the time, as best I can recollect, is like, oh, this seems like this interesting phenomenon that you sort of ex- maybe observe some examples of that in life, you know, like flagellants, they, you know, they to expiate their sins, they beat themselves until they bleed. Let's see if we can get that in the lab. I that usually cool. do that to masturbate, not, <laughs> not to expiate my sins. <laughs> right. That's uh, possibly a different psychology. And it amounts to the same thing. <laughs> Right, I'm just going to go punish myself, be back in five minutes. Um, anyway, so so I think I was like, oh, it would be cool to like get that in the lab to show that like people actually do this under control conditions. And now I'm like, is that cool? Like, I, d- I don't know. Like, is it cool just to demonstrate that you can make something happen in a lab that seems like sort of like somewhat intuitive if you like can point to examples in the real world that it does happen? 
Like, I'm not sure. Like, that, that doesn't seem that interesting to me anymore. So this is an interesting question to me, which is now, like, is there a value, like, if I approach it post hoc, if I approach it as a demonstration that a particular view of guilt was wrong, does it have value? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think if you're like, look, Roy Baumeister is important. The way you are thinking about guilt is actually incorrect. We can give you evidence that will cause you to update your beliefs. Then, yeah, that's useful, I think. Right, and then at least under some real specific conditions, we're showing that people are, are giving themselves. Right, because he was saying, I've never seen that happen, right? So then, then if you're like, that's a pretty strong claim, and then the existence proof is, is useful. Whether it's valuable or not is one thing, and maybe it is, hey, show that Roy Baumeister – there, here's something he says he's never seen, and it actually can be the case. But as, as a science, your goal isn't just to, you know, take something that somebody said and show that it was wrong. It is to construct theories that can occasionally survive this kind of falsification. And uh, because otherwise, it sounds like how you conceive of it, Dave, is that it's like the goal is to get to where Socrates is, where he's wise because he doesn't think he knows uh, what he doesn't know. I think that you are not getting the, what I think of as falsification. It's not that I am just seeking to, to – like I am building theories. I'm building positive claims. But the way that you go about it is through testing and seeing if it fails, right? So so you are – right? You are accumulating positive knowledge. It's not that I, I'm just trying to discard every thought that I have about this phenomenon. It's that I'm positively building um, a, a case, a theoretical case. And I think I'm just a little more patient about like the the – vague um, initial theoretical tests that people use where it's like, yeah, it's not yet a full-fledged theory. Let's take the claim, whoever made it, that guilt doesn't lead to self-punishment directly. And then I do the, the experiment and I, and I show that, no, in this case it does. Then I think that there's positive knowledge to add to the theory of guilt that you were, that you were uh, bringing to the table. So now you can say, oh, it looks like this is a potential uh, way in which guilt can work and which guilt can be reduced. And so let's do some other tests to see maybe what, like, are there boundary conditions for that? Is it only a specific set of people? Is it only uh, mild pain? Like, does it work with severe pain? And then you just start building, but you do it by trying to knock down, right, in the local sense, trying to, to hypothesis test by falsification. Yoel, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. This has been truly epic. Just in terms of length. <laughs> in terms of length. In terms of you guys argued a little, which you hardly ever do anymore, so that's exciting. I know, it's good. It feels good now when we do. It feels like a, feels like a, a, a release, much like the masturbation. The, uh, the punishing know. masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yoel, we didn't have you on for a movie, but we want you to know that you are now officially a friend of the podcast again. We've we've looked past the fact that you have a competing uh, podcast with growing numbers, and uh, we we're bigger than that. We're bigger men than that. That's that's very nice of you, and it really it makes me feel very happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, if it helps, the numbers aren't growing very quickly, so you know you do, you don't need to fear us for a while. <laughs> it's okay. Ours, yeah, I think that you're taking some from us. Listen to their podcast. I like it, uh, and we should have you on to do a bonus episode, like another Rick and Morty or something. I would love that. Um, I'd be. Did you guys ever talk about? Uh, you did talk about dark, didn't you? Oh yeah, we did. 
We did. Oh yeah. yeah. Yoel's the one who put me onto it. So so and we me. should actually for next yeah, for oh, next, wow. season, oh, next season. Yeah, next season. Yeah. That's, That's a great, great idea. idea. You should come. Yeah, that 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 will be tr- uh, epic as well. They're going to dump them, right? They're going to give us all of them at once? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, <laughs> Fuck science. Let's talk about dark. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with All your right. question, can we ever talk about another study again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Innocently? This, was, this is what I didn't, I didn't do proper job of, of introducing. But my fear was that all of these criticisms of science are going to lead to uh, Tamler and I not being able to have anything to talk about because already he's negative about philosophy. If he's negative about psychology, then like, what the hell is our podcast? <laughs> you can just keep talking about short stories. Yeah, David yeah. Foster Wallace. <laughs> we'll have to change the description on iTunes. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a philosopher and psychologist. Don't talk about philosophy or psychology. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Yoel. Listen to Two Psychologists for Beers. Um, join us next time on Very Bad Withers. Thanks for having me. Just a very bad wizard.